Hello, welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today we are speaking with Catherine Babayan. She's an associate professor of Iranian history and culture at the University of Michigan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm a, a big fan of the podcast, so it's great to be on the other side. Well, we're very excited that we were able to uh, capture this interview. And today we are going to be speaking about a topic that we don't ac- actually often talk about on the Ottoman History Podcast, which is Safavid history. And in particular, Professor Babian is going to be speaking about the city of Isfahan in the 17th and 18th century and the way it inscribed itself on both the built landscape, but also people's personal and political subjectivity, the way it created new forms of being and understanding. And we're going to do that through looking at the anthologies, that is the Mejmu'ah, the collections that were created in the city itself. Let's start with this question of, if someone came to Isfahan in 1600, it's a new imperial capital, what would they have seen? What would the daily life, the lived experience there be like? Well, in the 16th century, so it's a new capital city that's really building on a medieval city. Mm. And so there is an older medieval center that the Safavids, and in particular Shah Abbas, begins this transformation of a city mm-hmm. along a new square. And the, the square is called the Nakhshi Jahan, right? So the image of the world around which it's like seven times uh, the Piazza San Marco. Mm. And so you can imagine that it's this huge processional from a deviation from uh, the medieval city into this new space, which is a space where you have the new Friday prayer mosque on the southern side, a palace and a small little mosque where the Lotfola mosque, where visually you have these hundred arcades that were all painted. And according to some of the travelers, they're all painted depictions of Jannat, of paradise, right? With all hoodies and ghilmans. Wow. And so visually, I think that that's one of the things that, of course, one enters in today and sees the domes of mosques. So you see turquoise and you see, you know, lapis and, and yellows, and which is remarkable, but also to think about how what has been whitewashed now mm. were paintings and entering into what I think is a city of God was imagined that way because it was at the foot of or at the end of a millenari- millenarian movement, right? Mm-hmm. And so 1590s, you have this conjunction of Saturn and, and Jupiter, so many different millenarian movements uh, in the Ottoman world as well as um, in the Mughal world. And so this is a place where is a promise of that millenarian city and always associated literally, right, with um, with heaven, mm. the Friday prayer mosque with a second Kaaba. But then what I've tried to do is, is to try to enter into that experience of the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would it have been like? What, what, how, does, you know, how does the gaze get trained and educated? Because there's a certain kind of urbanity that comes with it from both a uh, dissemination of adab manuals, so how you're supposed to compa- comport mm-hmm. yourself in this new city, but also really to enter into the different kinds of possible literacies. And so I call it a a new sort of uh, education or cultivation of a graphic culture Mm. um, that I think 
stimulates and incites people to see differently, to view differently. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it allows for different kinds of literacies too, because, you know, Allah um, on one of the domes of the, the Sheikh Lotpola Mosque um, is very, you don't have to be literate, right? You don't have to know how to write, but you can recognize and you can recognize um, the name of Ali, and you can recognize the name of Muhammad. So it allows for both the epigraphy as well as these very sort of graphic icons for different forms of mm-hmm. um, literacy to enter into and experience the city. So what it sounds like is that there's this new building project of creating it into a capital. And can you just describe this mosque, for instance, like on the most basic level of literacy or script that people would see what what would they encounter so at the portal of the mosque you have the name of shah bosan and his descendants right mm-hmm. so that's very clearly it's difficult for me to read even but yeah. um, people have deciphered that but then you'd have the name of uh, i mean you'd have a co- basically the, the call to the unity of the muslim community because Esfahan was majority Sunni, and whatever we, however we understand what Sunni meant at the time, right? Mm-hmm. But so this is a mosque that is part of a program that Shabos and the Sheikh Al Islam, Sheikh Bahai, imagine, and I think Nohar Khuri has talked about how this the epigraphy of the mosque is itself a book, mm. a book written by Sheikh Bohoi to begin to educate uh, a population into the basic tenets of Shiism. So what's interesting about the mosque is that at the portal, you only have the call to the unity that God is great, Allah Akbar, God is one. Right. And so that's what's repeated as you the spiral on the minarets and the entry um, entry portal itself. And it's not until you enter into um, the, you pass the courtyard and enter into the, the main, uh, where the mihrab is, that Ali is introduced. And, uh-huh. and then that you have a hadith of Qadar Qum where Ali is the successor. And so I can imagine that um, people orally would hear these stories, mm. right? And then... All they needed to do was to be pointed out that this is the hadith of Qadir Qum, right? Mm. And so there's something about an engagement of, uh, of um, with the believer, right? An attempt at it, right? Um, but of course, one of the things that I try to do is that uh, people have worked on the architecture and, and people have worked on the epigraphy and this built environment, mm-hmm. but how do we know how people experience right. it, right? So I take that as a starting point of already a visual and a graphic stimulation yeah. and then try to understand it in the context of we have this massive production of majmues, of mm. anthologies. And then we have what is called single-page paintings, right? Which is a new phenomenon. It probably existed. Uh, painters did work in the Bazaar too, in Tabriz and, and uh, in Ghazvin, the former capitals in the 16th century. But the massive amount of patronage, uh, local patronage, outside of the court, right? And and sort of painters drawing quickly for their friends and mm-hmm. dating. So there's there's also this real sense, I think, of a historicity, of, of something different happening at this moment of time. That you have a painter who uh, signs, like, you know, Rezo Abbasi or Moin Musabbar, signs his name and dates it. Sometimes even says, 
I drew this um, in the um, alley of the horse, you know, weavers, um, mm-hmm. horse hair weavers, right? So the preciseness even of sort of locating yeah. where it is in this urban center, um, I think that that is also very much part of a consciousness that emerges. Mm-hmm. It also sort of leads to particular kinds of subjectivities, which then I, I, I think the one thing that I'm doing that is new, because of course I was trying to figure out <laughs> what are these, right? I mean, it, how do you come to understand these thousands and thousands of anthologies and what mm-hmm. do you make of them? And they- You're saying that they're in a sense reflective of this new experience of the city, of a new sort of city dweller who's understanding the world in a new way. What what are these anthologies? Are they just uh, what we would normally call a majmua or a collection? What we assume to be a, 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 a majmua is usually a single subject, right? So it's a majmua of poetry or mm. jung of poetry um, or of mathematical treatises or philosophical treatises, right? Single subjects. Um, and what is really unique about these majmuas, and I think that they're also produced in the Ottoman world, is that... Um, they are a patchwork, and I use the, the, the metaphor of a patchwork because muraka, uh, what is uh, used for uh, bringing together a lot of the single-page paintings into yeah. an album, is literally a patchwork. And so it's, it's one thing that I understand is that um, it's a household archive, mm. right? So it's a family, and, and I think that we're dealing with a city that doesn't have imperial or let's say court archives, civil um, archives, right? Qadis like you mm-hmm. have in, in, in Istanbul. And so it's a wonderful way to think about what is produced and curated in a household, right? And brought together in this majumware. So you have, that. What that's what confused me in the beginning when I went to Tehran uh, manuscript libraries is that in the catalogs, you would see, okay, a marriage contract, a poem, an essay, a talisman, a recipe mm-hmm. for food. And so it was this uh, mixture, really a patchwork of different kinds of things brought together. And so it took me a while to figure out what they are. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing that comes out very clearly, and I think with the Ottoman cases, it's, it's similar, is that you can tell a profession. So I could tell a Qazi, an anthology um, of a Qazi based on these kinds of Arabic, um, let's say, sentences that he would use and include Mm. and record on a daily basis for his work, for marriage contracts, for inheritance, for, you know, wills. Um, And so along with what he would use on a daily basis for work would be these things that he collected, like a recipe, a talisman for the fever, to cut the fever of his son, for instance, mm-hmm. or a poem that he wrote himself for, you know, a beloved, or letters that were then, you know, both model letters and letters that um, he himself had written right. and copied in. So what comes out is that work and, let's say, privacy mm-hmm. you see in these anthologies are very much part of the same world. Mm. Um, and so they're not separated as we think about, right? And You mentioned that these are created by households. Because when, mm-hmm. I, when I see them, mm-hmm. I see a lot of these in uh, when I work in the Ottoman manuscript libraries, whether in Bosnia or in Istanbul or in Cairo. You know, people have collected 
either in a notebook of their own or, you know, taken all sorts of treatises and bound mm. them together. And they, and they collect, you know, um, medicinal recipes next to a, maybe a fig treatise or things mm-hmm. like that. And, mm-hmm. and you're right. You can see this internal world, what they decided to put together and what they were experiencing. Uh, but you also mentioned that these are sort of household things, which I found fascinating. And what does that mean here? One thing was that I only focused on 17th century productions in Esfahan. Mm-hmm. So um, we can tell from the paper, right, that, that first of all, paper was produced in Esfahan. And so I tried to limit myself at least to mm. the production in Esfahan itself that I could actually argue that these are all produced in the city. But then where are they produced in right. the city, right? And we know from Wills um, uh, that actually Majmuez, like two books that would appear in Wills, are the Quran and the Majmue, right? So there's hmm. something really interesting along with furnishing, right? So it would be, and, and I found wills where it's like clearly not a very uh, rich household. Yeah, It's about, you know, having certain kinds of gleams and carpets and poshtis and, you know, pillows, very basic, right? But there's a Quran and a Majmue there too. So those are some more, uh, let's say, uh, documentary sort of evidence. Mm. But then it's really by reading through them, and most of them are anonymous, um, and I actually focused on one cleric, and one bureaucratic family uh, as a test case of helping me um, be guided through the anthologies and help my readers also be guided through it. And so the Urdubadi family, Majmue, and Jamal Khonsaris, there's names, their dates, mm-hmm. um, their scribal names, patron names, and very helpful, a table of contents. <laughs> because it's like, well, to go through this thing mm-hmm. is amazing. And so I read the table of contents as a creative innovation right. too, of trying to guide that there's so much knowledge being s- circulating mm-hmm. in the city, right? Yeah, it's this purposeful curation of the contents. Exactly. Right? So it, that's why I'm using it. And then there, you know, with the Urdu bodies, you can tell very clearly they collect letters, diplomatic letters, they're, they're in the bureaucracy, there was there were a grand vizier. Um, they came from Urdubad, so in northwestern Iran, with Shah Abbas to Esfahan. And so they're there at this formative moment of the city as it's becoming this cosmopolitan city as well. Um, so their letters that they're actually writing um, for the chancery are preserved as though it's private property, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't end up in the archive, um, in, the, in the imperial archive, right? But along with that, then you also have these personal um, letters, these spaces of intimacy, this one widow's uh, masnavi as she goes from um, Esfahan to uh, Ghazvin, to Tabriz, and to Urdubad, her, her home town, and eventually to Mecca and Medina. And so it gives me a sense of how both professional um, and private uh, material mm-hmm. are collected together. And so it also allows me for intimate places to enter into the household. And so what's interesting about this one majmu is that uh, clearly it also is marked by the Afghan invasion. So the end of um, Safavi rule, whereby this majmu is taken to Urdubad 
unbound, uh, there is an addition, additional material. So the, I, I read it as, so the life of the Urdu bodies in Esfahan for the hundred years that they were there, and then the continuation of their life in Urdubad mm. as um, material is added on that was collected um, in, in another in another city too. And so I end my book that way because it's about leaving Esfahan. Mm. Uh, it's about what gets collected and the kind of life that these this uh, bureaucratic family have um, and how they then uh, continue. And it's 800 pages, and so it, wow. it, it gives you so many indications of even notions of copying and authenticity. Mm-hmm. And what did it, does it mean that an imaginary was begun by one member of his family whose name Named in the debauche in the preface, right? And it continues even as this book grows mm-hmm. um, to bring in the history of the Urdu body family, right? So it's really, I mean, it's it's a family archive in a sense, continuously collected and how would you say added upon? Definitely, yeah. So new stages, and even you know what's beautiful about it is that they're um, empty places, mm-hmm. right? So on, on a sheet of paper you have writings, and then you have just this blank space for like these lacuna for the future, even right? Mm-hmm. Um, this imagination that that this is going to be this is it, it is a collective uh, in this sense. It's really a collective project, mm-hmm. right? And so collection and patchwork for sure are very much sort of analytics through which I'm trying to understand the city because, of course, there are different ways of understanding the city from its built environment to the kinds of trade networks that that are in circulation. But here it's like what was circulating in the city? What got collected? Um, And and if you read enough of these majmuas, they actually share a lot of material. Mm. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and I'm speaking with Catherine Babayan about miscellaneous collections, anthologies uh, that were that came out of the city of Isfahan in the 17th century. And one of the things you mentioned here, and I think what's unique about this case, is that you can see the city in these anthologies, in these miscellanies. And I want to return to this point, you know, what is it of the city that we can see uh, in in these giant kind of almost family archive mejmuas? To answer your question, I, I think about what does a city do mm. that an anthology does and an archive does? I think mm. those are the three sort of more conceptual spaces um, that I'm interested in looking at. And so I think a city collects, mm-hmm. a city circulates, a city communicates, right? And I think that partially these anthologies are not only what is produced in the city mm-hmm. to help guide the, the individual in performing also their own subjectivities mm. in the city um, as well, but it's also what gets circulated in the city, friendships, right? So I think that the, the what gets communicated in the city, how to, co- how to communicate, and I think the important 
aspect of it, and I was here inspired by David Henkin's book on New York in the 19th century, is that often you have a city where there are people from all over the world who come, mm-hmm. but there's these you know Tabrizis that are brought in, and they're, one assumes they're merchants, and they've been... Turkic speakers, you have yeah. Armenians who are there, you have Indians who are living there, um, you have foreigners who are coming in, you have people f- attracted to coming to, this, to the city from all over the Iranian world, or the Safavi world, I should say, uh, who don't know each other. So how do you communicate? Mm-hmm. And how do you learn how to to talk to somebody who comes from Tabriz and, and Ghazvin, right? And, and how do you begin to live together in a city? And I, so I think partially uh, there is a stimulation uh, of a graphic culture, but partially what um, is the incitement to write and to collect is to how to be uh, an, a new subject in a city and really literally how to communicate with people from different walks of mm-hmm. life, from different regions as well. So these are all forms of communication, which I think friendship is part of it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I look at, so I look at the city and what connects the city through friendships. And there are different ways um, that friendship appears in my um, a- anthologies. And one is that it becomes model friendship letters are all over, right? That that's what connects so many of these anthologies mm. together is that how to write a letter. And there's they take into consideration too these kind of model um, letters for different literacies. So even Masalan, uh, if you don't know how to write, just write the opening at greeting of an addressee. And there's a sense of if it's your old elder or if, or if it's somebody equal to you, if it's your aunt, mm. if it's your brother, if it's your female or male friend. And so there's a sense of how networks of friendships through the communication of letter, the letter. And I think the letter is a really important technology here because there's a movement from speaking face-to-face, mm-hmm. right, to the importance of actually part of the adab, right, is to the importance of actually sending in letters to your friend. Mm. And there are these moments of time where it's important to write to them, to chide them if they haven't come to see you for mm-hmm. a while, or if you've heard rumors that they've been talking behind your back, right? And so there's all these different ways of creating ties and maintaining ties mm-hmm. because enmity is very much part of this too it's a it's a it's so friendship and enmity are the same i think it's within a, the same spectrum absolutely of, yeah and so most of the time actually the occasions to write these letters are when communication between your friend when the, your friend hasn't come to pay you the kind of respect of supporting and in a way continuing the kind of sustaining, Mm -hmm. sorry, that's a better term for it, so sustaining the friendship and to letters become a space. And I think these letters are just fascinating too because it's a, you see also generic uh, shifts that are going on. So many of the uh, tropes in a ghazal now then Mm. get uh, deployed and they become part of a prose letter. Right. right? So uh, to think also about how 
we move from a, a face-to-face encounter, what are the kinds of things? I mean, you have to embody the letter with the eyebrows of your friend mm-hmm. and with the, their eyes and their lip, lips and their cheeks, right? So it, there's very much of an interesting relationship here uh, between what is oral communication to, to what becomes paper communication. Yeah. I want to get back to this question of Adab, but just before I forget, you know, if you're thinking again about these Mejmuas as, as an archive, you know, why would someone necessarily preserve, you know, a letter to a friend mm-hmm. in this case? Well, that's the the indication that it's obviously important, right? Yeah. These are the kinds of things that were important in order to live in the city to to memorialize a mm. friendship as well, right? So I think that that that's what gets curated tells me what was important for this individual yeah. during their lifetime in in Esfahan, and so the adab part. So can we just explain what adab is, maybe for our listeners? Yeah, it's that don't etiquette, know. right? It's yeah. it's an etiquette um, that is not only about learning how to speak, how to write, but it's also very much about how to comport your, yourself, your physically, right, yeah. your body. Uh, how do you act in in a city? How do you when you go into a coffee house? What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to look at? And I think there is where the visual single page paintings really come to help me understand the literary and the visual together, mm. because there's so many of a lot of them are stock figures, right? Uh, oftentimes young males, um, but always with gestures, right? And I think there there are female um, representations too, but they're mostly male. And my sense of reading them is that it's about... It, it's about showing uh, a man how it is, again, part of this adab, an education of the senses, right? How to become masculine mm. in this urban environment, how to comport yourself, what, what you know, what is a flower and, and, and how you hold a, a, a flower in your hand and how you desire, of course, is mm-hmm. also very much activated um, that way. And so I think that that performativity has a lot to do with this kind of mannerism, which is part of Adapt to how you, the, how you're supposed to hold yourself, mm. right? And so what kind of um, subject and object relationship as far as desire um, can be created mm-hmm. and can be, yeah, create sort of... Um, aesthetic so i think that that then we didn't talk about the aesthetic aspect of it but definitely the city is a city that also i think um, cultivates a particular kind of an aesthetic with this graph mm. graphic culture so just to kind of uh, revisit some of these points i mean so you have this large menjmua inside you have a variety of different treatises recipes things like that including as as we went through you know these letters from friends Mm -hmm. but you would also maybe go to the bazaar and you would buy the single page painting right and this painting would be of a a young boy or so forth and in the course of looking at it and maybe discussing it with the friends Mm -hmm. you would slowly train your gaze you train the way um you would understand as you said desire and aesthetics and everything through that, and by doing so, you're also gaining this adab, this form mm-hmm. of comportment and moral being, and yeah. this subjectivity. And then this is, in a sense, a back and forth between you and the city, right? Where you are getting these objects from the city. Mm-hmm. They're being created by the city. 
but it's also training you how to interact with the city. Definitely, yeah. And to maybe I give you an example that that uh, will really bring it to life. So when we talk about these letters, and I think that we, we have to, what I, uh, I mentioned is that these letters also have, you have to realize what a new technology it is, right? So it's not diplomatic letters, it's that people have to get used to not only what to write, but to hear news from your friend through a letter. Mm -hmm. And so there are these visual representations too of precisely that. Uh, there is uh, no longer uh, what is missing in these later 17, mid 17th century. You, it's rare to actually have two men in conversation together, right? Instead, you have single men um, reading a letter or reading a book, which I think that, that this notion of intimacy comes in. But there is uh, uh, Afsal, one of the, the painters, uh, he develops this uh, new way of representing a male reading a letter and then the beloved appearing in his uh the, the pillow that he's actually leaning on right mm. so art historians have looked at that and say well you know this is you know particular to this painter it's a kind of style that he develops and he learns it from his teacher but in juxtaposition and, and i think that's the the richness of juxtaposing the imagine was with these single paintings mm. as well you see no it is about a certain way of educating the individual about how first of all there's more intimate reading, or, or one can say beginning of a private reading um, practices of letters. But also, what do you do when you don't have these face-to-face -face encounters, right? And so you imagine your beloved mm. and the words that the letter itself, um, the form letters have, is that it's actually embodying the, the beloved in the letter itself, but for somebody to even recognize it, and I, I think maybe in the beginning, like of this practice of sending letters, maybe a single page painting like that mm. was also sent along as a gift to a friend, right? To begin this practice of actually long distance. Um, Mutual visualization in a yeah. sense. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. So I think I, I just want to ask this because we're talking about the city and the type of people it creates. And often in both, I think, American culture, but also in Ottoman culture, there's this notion of the country boy becoming the city boy, someone coming from outside the city, from the rural provinces and learning how to behave, how to become urbane, as we would say in English, or the same construction occurs in Turkish, you know, between Shehir, the city, mm -hmm. and, and to become famous, you know, Teshir and things like that. I mean, the, those two words are connected. Is this, can you see this in the, in the Mejmuas themselves? Is this process um, occurring amongst Safavid subjects in Isfahan in the 17th century? I know the two examples you had, you know, these people are already, they're already prominent families. Well, uh, actually, the clerical family. So uh, the Khansari family, it's a great example of exactly that. Mm. Um, they come from Khansar. During this period, the father um, comes and he begins to study. And there even, his, you know, his biographies of, of, of the ulama say he was very poor. He didn't even have uh, in the winter a blanket wow. to cover. And so you see the coming into the learning. And mm -hmm. so the 
religious education is one way to rise through the echelons, just like it is um, in the Ottoman world as well. And so he, he comes to study with very prominent figures um, there in, in Esfahan and too, but he also becomes an Urbania, he becomes um, a Shahri, right? So I think there's definitely this you can see and and you can also see from what he he collects you know he collects letters from his um teacher Mirfendereski and so it's really important for him but also what's fascinating so here you have a religious cleric we know what kinds of stuff he produces and and he tries to be literary too and he he collects uh, romances written um, on mystical love as right. well, but he also has uh, a lot of almanacs. He has books of divination, so that from what you see is collected in his own majmue, a very different kind of a public figure emerges from from the kinds of things that he had written and shared in um, the religious circles, mm. but then what he practiced himself, right? Fornomes of Jafar Sodeq. I would have never thought f- from reading his, his work uh, that this guy actually used and practiced divination on, on a day-to-day le- level as a cleric, right? Mm. So it's not only how he became urbanized and he uh, he definitely developed a certain kind of a language and adab uh, and a knowledge of how to write and, and how to appreciate poetry as well, mystical poetry as well, but also how, what he practiced. You know, this has been a fascinating conversation and I think whenever we talk about archives, uh, whenever we talk about the past, there's always this question of how, how does it get preserved? And I'm just thinking of uh, a mejmua, a miscellany that I came across in my research. And it was by a 17th century kind of Sufi intellectual thinker who presented this massive work to the court. But what I found fascinating is that his wife, uh, after he died, took his two mejmuas and endowed them and put them in the public library so that people could then use them and then engage with them and so forth and made sure that his sort of legacy uh, was preserved. And so I just want to get a sense of where do we find these mejmoas, these miscellanies today? I think you mentioned the the library in Tehran, but do we have a story of how they kind of made it yeah, to our provenance our is really important. Um, so the family mejmoas, where there it's very clear, like the Urdubodis or the yeah. Khansaris, these majmuas stayed within the the library of the family and then in the late 19th century early 20th century where Tehran University Library or Malik Library different manuscript libraries were established they were given by the family as an entire collection Mm. to the library itself those are the ones that we let's say know more about but i think what happens and which is fascinating to follow the story of these majmuas is that a lot of them get resold what we have in sort of the the inside the opening of the the folios we have different ownerships we have different prices Mm -hmm. we have a continuation until the 19th century of these majumas circulating in the bazaar being resold and so this whole i i think one can do a history of reading because print comes in much later and so there is a fascinating story about the different hands that then enter into the reading and the writing of of these majumas themselves 
So thank you for this fascinating conversation. And I encourage all our listeners to check out Catherine's book, uh, The City as Anthology. Visualizing cultures of literacy in early modern Isfahan. And if you want to know more, come to our website. There'll be a short bibliography. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get some of these images uh, up there as well. So you can kind of see what these people were looking at as, as well as when they were reading these menjumuas, these miscellanies. Um, and thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for your work with the podcast. That's really um, an amazing uh, service to the, to the field. So thank you. <laughs>